Welcome to Stories of Recovery. My name is Robbie Frawley, and on this podcast, I interview people who have experienced and recovered from brain-related conditions such as stroke, concussion, chronic pain, and traumatic brain injury. We discuss their story and highlight the things which have been most beneficial and most important in their recovery. This might be specific treatments or medical professionals that were most crucial. It could be books, knowledge or advice which they were given or which they found along the way, or even particular habits, attitudes or practices that helped them the most. If you or someone you care about is struggling to recover from one of these or another brain-related condition, the podcast was really made with you in mind. I want you to know that others have been where you are now and that they have gotten better. You can recover and hopefully in the interviews that follow, you'll hear a thing or two which resonate and which help you to do just that. So who am I? Well, I'm a young man who grew up in country Victoria, Australia, and I've had a number of concussions growing up playing sport. After the last one, which was over seven years ago now, I developed something called post-concussion syndrome. I'd never even heard of this, but it left me with ongoing fatigue, headaches, nausea, vertigo, cognitive fog, overwhelm, and sensitivity to impact. It had a really dramatic effect on my life, and it took many years, much effort, and great assistance from others to fully recover from it. And now that I am back to 100%, and again have some surplus energy, I'd like to help you in any way I can to get you back to good health. My hope is that we can provide some light at the end of the tunnel for you and also give you some useful tips and tricks that might help you along the way. Now, one thing to remember is that the brain is a really marvellous thing and you can get better. Now, I've left in as much of the context, detail and information in these interviews as possible, which means they can be quite long but they are split into key chapters to make it easier to listen and to help you to focus on what you need to hear right now. And remember that you can pause and come back to the story in as many small bites as you need. Now, without further ado, let's jump into it. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sally Kelly, a triple Olympian, a world record holder, and a world champion in the sport of rowing, who's also a mother, a teacher, and a stroke survivor. Following the birth of Sally's second child in 2011, she experienced a seizure, and upon returning to hospital, discovered that she had a blood vessel deep within her brain, which was ready to rupture. Sally needed to undergo brain surgery to remove the blood vessel, and though this was successful, she awoke from the surgery to find that she could not move half of her body. She had suffered a stroke on the operating table, And this is when a whole new journey began, one in which she drew out all of the learnings from her Olympic career. This conversation took place remotely in October this year, following several delayed attempts to catch up in person due to COVID border restrictions. It's always been my intention to record all interviews for this podcast in person to capture the best possible sound quality for your ears. However, as this was going to further delay the launch of the podcast, and this episode from Reaching Your Ears, we've decided to utilise the power of technology to assist bringing this story to you earlier. As a result, this conversation took place in two places at once, both on the lands of the Gundijamara people of southwestern Victoria 
and the Turbul and Yugara people of southeast Queensland, and I would like to acknowledge them both as traditional owners of their respective land. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening to this conversation. I wish you courage and energy on your own journey forward, and I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. We've been lining up this conversation for some time now and even though we're still far, far away from one another, it's really nice just to have a chat to you and to see you in on the screen and um, yeah, yeah, just actually have a conversation face-to-face in some means. Yeah, it's long, long overdue, isn't it? It absolutely yeah. is. It is. <laughs> now, you have a very impressive sporting resume, three Olympics, a world record, gold at the under-23 world championships. To give people some context for your life preceding your stroke, are you able to tell me a little bit about your sport and how you got into that? Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, it was actually by by chance that I got into rowing. Um, I was a loved my sport, um, a bit of a cross-country runner actually. Um, but I was in year 11 and I was sitting um, in a school assembly um, and a visitor came into the school and asked three questions to the school cohort are you tall, are you 16, or would you like to go to the Olympic Games? Um, now, at that stage, the Olympics were something I dreamt of and um, I was definitely tall. Um, so I put my hand up in the hope that I got selected. Um, but they grabbed uh, kids from all over the state and they brought them down to the Sports Institute and measured them up. Now, your arm span had to be longer than your height, uh, power and endurance test, and a whole lot of anthropometrical testing. Um, they narrowed those kids down to 10 boys and 10 girls and told us that we were going to be the future Olympic champions of rowing. Wow. Uh, now, at this stage, I'd never rowed before, and no one else had ever rowed before, and I think that was by design, that they'd gone to schools that didn't offer rowing. Um, they interviewed the parents to make sure the parents were as committed as the potential athletes. Oh, wow. Um, and interestingly, before we could even get into a boat, they asked us to commit to four goals. Um, so we sat upstairs in the boathouse, um, and I know um, in Melbourne you know boathouses quite well. Yep. Um, we have some in South Australia. We sat up there and they said, in your first year, you need to learn how to row but also be good enough to be selected for the World Junior Championships in Norway. <laughs> now, that was massive. And, and saying to a you know 16-year-old Norway, I mean, that was enough to get me started. Um, then in your second and third year, the World Senior Championships in the USA and Finland and then the fourth year, the Olympic Games in Atlanta. Um, so, I mean, pretty exciting stuff when you're that age yeah. and all the travel that they talked about. Um, so I was pretty locked in. Um, I decided to give up my cross-country running and give everything I had to this new sport called rowing. Um, but, you know, being a 16-year-old kid, you think your future is set. You know, I thought I'd just finish off year 11 and 12 and relocate to the Australian Institute of Sport, you know, and then um, turn up to the Olympics, pick up the gold medal and, rake up all those ticker tape parades. Yeah. Um, but obviously it wasn't that easy. <laughs> so it, interestingly, training was twice a day um, and it was six days a week. Training started at 5 a.m. Um, and I, that was a big shot for a lot of the kids, a lot of the athletes, um, and the dropout rate was enormous. But it was my best friend and I that managed to stay um, and push our way through to that first World Junior Championship together. Mm. She ended up winning a gold in the pair and I won a silver in the single. 
Um, and we went on to do many world championships and Olympic Games together. That's awesome. So it was a really exciting talent identification program, um, and it was pretty successful. Very you know, effective, many, yeah. Many of the athletes, um, you know, within four years were, were standing in the opening ceremony at the Olympic Games. And, you know, to tell you the truth, Robbie, it was it was amazing. You know, to be four years learning to row to getting to the Games was, you know, just a dream come true. Yeah, um, absolutely. But those f- four years were quite crazy, you know, going from a school kid to an Olympic athlete and managing all that schoolwork and the extra training. Um, but I, I look back on those incredible psychological lessons that we learn, you know, as athletes and, you know, I look back and those were the lessons that I guess saved my life, you know, when I had the stroke. So I, um, those lessons were priceless. You know, the physical training was relentless, but that psychological training, um, that was just priceless. The things that we learn through sport is amazing. Beautiful. All right. Well, and then let's, let's move forward. So I'm guessing this was around 2012 then when you'd, you'd just come back from the Olympics is that right? What, what was the time period? Yeah, no. Um, so I finished in my last Olympics was 2004 um, and then I had two children after that um, and it was the um, the child that I had in 2011 that caused the stroke. Okay. That caused the brain um, the brain issue. Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. us through that in as much as little yeah, detail so, as you'd like? Um, yeah, I guess I was at that point where life was perfect, um, married, job, um, you know, a child and then pregnant with the second child. Um, And that second child, everything went to plan. um, But two weeks after giving birth to that second child, um, I had a seizure. Um, So immediately after the seizure, I went in and had an MRI to see what caused the seizure. uh, And they found what we call an arteriovenous malformation, so an AVM. And it's a cluster of blood vessels that you're born with that had been with me through my whole life and perhaps bleeds under stress. So I guess the stress of childbirth um, brought on a seizure. Um, The neurosurgeon said straight out to me, um, you've got two choices. Um, You can either leave it, um, but it will cause a catastrophic stroke, or you can have brain surgery, which comes with a 20% fatality. Um, So I had a newborn baby and a one-year-old, and I had, you know, some big decisions to make. Um, part of me wanted to leave it because I thought I wanted just to be a mother. I had this real urge to at least mother my kids for the next few years. Um, but the other part thought I need to get this little nugget out and um, carry on. So I negotiated with the surgeon to delay the surgery by six months. Um, and that was the best decision I've ever made because that six months were the best six months of my life. You know, it was full of Uh, I guess, love and compassion and um, gratitude and just really gave me this feeling that I had a second chance um, at being able to do what I wanted to do before that operation came. Um, So I look back on that six months and I made sure every day, you know, was filled with, I guess, um, you know, looking at every sunset and sunrise and spending time with my kids and calling friends that I, I, you know, had lost touch with. Um, It was a real motivation you know when you're being told that you've got a 20 percent fatality coming your your direction yeah that's incredible Um, the other thing that makes makes mm. me think of when you know he said a period of stress can cause this and i just think well you've just been through three olympics like you've pushed your body so hard and it could have theoretically gone during any of those absolutely that's right robbie and i look at rowing at the olympic games and if 
if anyone, any of your audience knows anything about rowing, those ergometers, those two kilometer ergos we do, they are equivalent to childbirth. There is no different yeah, to um, rowing is a really tough sport. So I do feel very, very fortunate <laughs> yeah. that I got three Olympic games out. I got two kids out and then this thing happened. So that six months was just gratitude. I just felt like the luckiest person on earth. And I, I think, um, I really worked hard on my mindset because it's pretty easy to go the other way. Yep. You know, we can't control what happens to us, but it's, we can choose our response. And I did sink into that direction of why me, you know, why why is this happening to me? But I was able to recognize that pretty quickly and turn my mindset around to how lucky am I, you know, to have a second chance at life. This thing was meant to kill me and it didn't. And um, here I am now having the opportunity to have some surgery. And so then when you did go, go in for the surgery, um, do you want to just talk through what happened at that point? Yeah, so that day finally arrived after six months. Um, found myself in hospital. Um, uh, I was pretty nervous, to be honest. You know, um, I had my parents with me. They'd flown from Adelaide over to New Zealand because that's where I was at the moment. We were at, we happened to be living in New Zealand for a couple of years when this happened, so I had to have all the surgery in New Zealand. So, um, you know, I was lying on the operating table and the only way I knew how to deal with you know, that sort of stress was through performance, you know, through rowing. So I can remember lying on my back and closing my eyes. Just and before just, the surgery? Yes, yeah. So yeah. as, you know, they're preparing me, I remember lying on my back and visualising the rowing boat. I had myself on the start line of a race um, and I could feel the oars in my hand and I could feel the adrenaline in my legs um, and I just could hear the umpire call my name up to the start line. Um, and I yeah. felt that inner athlete in me and I was just so determined to win the race. And I remember that mindset of drawing into a place or a time where you felt success and powerful really helped me, um, I guess, stay strong in that moment where you're about to go in for a seven-hour surgery. Um, mm -hmm. So With the realistic chance of, yeah, of not Yeah, because you don't know if you're going to wake up when there's a 20% chance that you won't survive this. They said there was a 20% chance of um, stroke, paralysis, coma or death. That was what mm. the I had to sign. Um, you know, before you go in, you sign the agreement. And that was what was uh, stated. So I was incredibly nervous at that period of time. Um, but the craniotomy took seven hours. Um, and thankfully, it was a success in the point that the AVM was surgically removed. Um, but I woke up intensive care and um, I was paralysed down one side of the body um, and the MRI revealed that I'd survived a stroke during the surgery. Um, Robbie, I felt like an athlete in an infant's body because I was just lifeless. You know, I was unable to move. Um, I couldn't escape the physical form. Um, you know, I just I lay, I lay on my back and I just wished for death because there I was an athlete but I was trapped in an infant's body. It was completely frightening place to be and you know I grieved for, my, for the loss of my husband's wife um, and I grieved for the loss of the boy's mother and I just grieved for the new person that ah. I'd become you know in that seven hour period it was a really tough place to be to be an athlete lying on your back unable to move. Can I ask was that did you have any prior experience with stroke like had you known anyone with stroke or what was your um experience with it prior to that yeah interestingly um the partner that i'd had you know for uh, um, most of my rowing career his grandfather had had a stroke um and as a part-time job while i was rowing i was his carer okay um 
so I would live at their house um, and I was fortunate enough to um, help um, my partner's granddad. Uh, he was 80 and paralysed on one side of the body, um, so I would help him, you know, with dinner and things like that. But it was really hard to put two and two together. You know, I always assumed stroke happened to an elderly person. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of stroke happening to a young person, so I was being educated very quickly. Um, and I thought stroke happened due to unhealthy diet. You know, it was that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, I didn't think stroke could happen um, to a healthy young athlete. Which would have been um, so I was educated terrifying. pretty quickly. Yeah. And and stroke does happen. It doesn't. Um, it happens to anyone, and that's what I've learned since. It happens to any age, any health. Um, which is which is where I'm quite passionate about now, helping those that were in my situation as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, what what did you get told at that time by the medical staff? What did um, they tell you? Yeah, or what they, do you remember of that? I, I remember, you know, there was a, you know, when you come out of a craniotomy, um, there's a lot of brain swelling. So there is a lot of being told that perhaps this is not a stroke, perhaps. Um, the brain's just swollen, um, perhaps you'll be able to move again, perhaps you won't. I guess there was a little bit of confusion as to um, what was going on there and I was told to have a bit of patience and just see how the body responded over the next two weeks. Um, so I just lay on my back for two weeks. Um, it was pretty hard to do when you just want answers. Yeah. I'm used to <laughs> I had a newborn baby. I had a husband that was trying to, you know, look after our mortgage and also a one-year-old child. Um, so it was a, a really tough time to um, be waiting to see what the body would do. And each time a doctor walked in, you know, I'd say things like, tell me, tell me, you know, when is movement going to return? And each doctor was as vague as the other, you know. they just say they don't know. Did you ever get a sort of a definitive, yes, you've had a stroke, it's, you know, this isn't going to come good? now yeah and, and what was the messaging at that point did they give you any information in regards to or expectations of time frames and what your rehab you know how long you would be in rehab and and the degree to which you would recover or they expected you to recover so yeah after two weeks when I, there was no movement um i really needed an answer you know i was i was young i had two kids two weeks old, sorry, a six-month-old and a one-year-old, and I needed an answer. So I asked to have another MRI and we found a bleed on the brain which showed I had had a stroke. Um, and I think that made it easier because I could put myself in a category with others and I could probably reach out to other stroke survivors. So when I got the diagnosis that I had stroked, um, that made things a little bit easier because then I could read books and, and find out the latest research on, on stroke recovery. So now I was told that 90 days you know, was the window and I had 90 days to really to really go for this. And I didn't want to get to those 90 days and realise I hadn't tried. I wanted to give everything I had and see what was possible. Yeah. Can, but, can I ask a question mm. about the 90 days? Like I've heard that as well, but I've also heard it debunked. And, yes. And I suppose I find it quite a disempowering sort of thing to hear as though you know, that's it and there's no point continuing beyond that when that just doesn't align with um, yeah. what the current science says. Um, can you just, conf you know, um, I presume you have seen further recovery post 90 days? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the 90 days comes from when you get the most recovery. Um, yeah. 
and it does, I guess, help. It gives you a, a time limit to push hard. But when that 90-day came, and I'm sure many other brain injury survivors are the same, you feel really let down, like um, is, yeah. this, is this how it's going to be for the rest of my life? I've, yeah, I've spoken to a few other friends that were in similar positions and they too, you know, are it's quite, yeah, it's quite difficult when you get to that 90-day mark. So it's really nice to debunk that. Um, I'm still even nine years later still getting progress um, and that just comes from every day doing something. So every day picking up a pencil with my weak side, my paralysed side and attempting to write. And my writing is messy yeah. but it's getting better and better. You know, the more you practice something, the better it gets. Um, but when I asked one doctor, well, how, how will movement return? Because after two weeks I was still had no progress that one doctor, um, he said the most amazing word to me. He said visualization, and I thought, "Bang! Like visualization. This is something I had done for eight weeks prior to the Olympic Games when I had um, broken my rib. You know, I sat there in that boat park visualizing movement. So from that point on, um, I felt really empowered. You know, I knew how to visualize. I was a good visualizer. It was something you could do. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think giving the patient the power gave me so much hope you know so I actually designed a training program that was eat sleep train repeat and training was simply visualizing myself holding an oar visualizing the lactic acid you know trying to feel lactic acid in the legs trying to feel a crosswind on my face you know trying to hear the umpire um, and I say this to stroke survivors or anyone with a brain injury that's lost some movement you know we have to go back to a familiar place and try and feel that feel that sensation that that place gave you perhaps if you're a golfer you know feel what the rubber feels like in your hand and I think any of those neural pathways are still it's still there and I, I really believe that you can reconnect them if you can visualize the movement and we do know that that's how visualization works it it connects neurons and it fires neurons and even if you can't be physically seeing the movement in your body you can be physically activating those neurons by visualizing a picture um, and that's and that was the start of my recovery. Whether it was the yeah. ownership of the training program or was it the neurons firing, um, but from the next point on, I started to get slight um, twitches in my in my leg, um, and I could start to see that there was going to be some movement coming back. And how long were you in in hospital? Yeah, so I had two weeks in hospital, um, and I that was because I was waiting for a bed in the rehab centre, um, and then after two weeks, I was moved to a rehabilitation centre. Um, I actually thought the rehabilitation centre was going to be like the Australian Institute of Sport. I had it in my mind that um, perhaps there'd be uh, physios and nurses, you know, wanting to coach me and we would they'd be doing research and I'd be like the athlete. So I was really optimistic that this was going to be a place where I'd learn to walk and dress and, yeah. you know, break records. I was very optimistic. But when I got there, it was a typical rehab um, center um, it was there were six elderly stroke patients sharing a room with me uh, we only had a curtain dividing us um, I was issued adaptive cutlery commode wheelchair um, green uniform green gown um, and I was just told to rest my brain and I can remember closing getting the, the nurses to close the curtains and I just burst into tears I'd never felt so low in my life you know it was just a point where I felt, you know, like this is where I was going to spend the rest of my life. You know, it was a, a really tough place to be, um, especially being told to rest your brain and when you're given all the adaptive um, cutlery and things in the commode, it was, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. It was really tough. 
That's the end of chapter one. In chapter two, Sally describes her rehab and taking ownership.